0: Thanks for joining us on the Hope Podcast. Hope Community Church exists to love people where they are and help them grow in their relationship with Jesus Christ. By pursuing this relationship together, we can change the world. We have multiple locations, including an online service found at gethope.tv. If you're not from the greater Raleigh-Durham area in North Carolina or near our Agape campus in Haiti, we'd love to still have you be a part of what Hope is up to through our online services. If you do live in our physical area, go to our website at gethope.net to check out where our campuses are located and our service times. Please like and share this with your friends or family. We are so glad you stopped by. Well, hello and happy
1: new year. My name's Chase, I'm one of the campus pastors here. I think that we can all breathe a collective sigh of relief that we got through 2020. I am cautiously optimistic for 2021, but hey, you never know what can happen. Uh, But this is my favorite time of year here at Hope. you think it'd be Christmas or Easter, but no, it's the new year because this is when a ton of new people show up to our church. And I don't know if it's a New Year's resolution thing or people just wanna get started off on the right foot at the beginning of the year, but just like people join gyms by the hundreds and thousands, so people check out church for the first time. And if that's you at one of our campuses or watching online, welcome. We're so glad you chose to attend. And it's not just new folks either. Uh, It's also folks who already attend or call Hope home, but because of the busyness of life the past few months, they haven't joined us for a while, Uh, but around this time of year, they kind of recommit to this, whole church thing, and if that's you, welcome back. And I didn't know if this pattern would hold true this year, but sure enough, we got a lot of emails and phone calls of people asking how they could get involved or attend our services. And so the past few days, I've just kind of been thinking about why. Why is that? Why do so many people show up to church this time of year? You know, because of the pandemic, life is busier than ever, so why would people be willing to add uh, one more thing to their already crowded schedule? Um, And also, although we do socially distance and we do this very, very safely, it's still a sizable group of people if you're here in person. So why are people willing to brave the crowds? What is it about church that draws people or that attracts people this time of year? Now, I've been in full-time ministry for about 15 years, so I don't think it's because people are bored and need one more thing to go to or to do, And I don't think it's necessarily because people are looking for a quick fix for their marriage or their finances or their family or their relationships, although that's part of it. And man, God offers some amazing wisdom when it comes to those things. But the more I thought about it and the more I've talked to people here around hope, um, the more I'm convinced that people show up because they're just looking for a little bit of hope. Not a capital H hope, not this church in particular, but just hope in general. You know, it's this time of year uh, that gets us looking back at the last 12 months, what we did, what we didn't do, what we wished we would have done. And it's around this type of year that we just take an honest assessment of where we are. And some people can look back at 2020 and say, yep, that was a banner year, I couldn't have done it better if I tried, and if that's you, I wanna meet you because I need some more positive people in my life. But for most of us, there's some regrets. There's some desires to do it better this time around. That's why we make all these New Year's resolutions, because we're not happy where we're currently at. And so this time of year, I just think that we're honest and we admit that we need some help in certain areas. And so we come back here, come back to church for just a little bit of hope. Hope that maybe uh, at the end of 2021, we can look back and say, yeah, I'm not in the same spot I was a year ago. And I would say that this need for hope is stronger than ever before. Or let me say it negatively, hopelessness is more prevalent than it ever has been, at least in my lifetime. And this sense of hopelessness has obviously been magnified with the events of last year. In the years past, we could say, yeah, I gained 40 pounds. I set a new record for hours spent on Netflix, but at least I have my job. At least I have my health. At least I have all those memories of time spent with family and with friends. At least the foundational things in life stayed consistent. But 2020 took a lot of those things from many of us. There's a pandemic. There's financial insecurity. There's fears about safety and health. There's racial tensions that boiled over into just protests, but also riots and destruction. It's one of the nastiest and most divisive political seasons we've ever had. So it could be very easy to look back at the world and all that happened in 2020 and just give up hope. Hope in people, hope in politics, hope in public institutions. And that's where many of us are right now. We're all looking at 2021 with a little bit more trepidation, a little bit more fear, and a little less hope. So if you're listening right now, and would say, Chase, that's me. I do feel a little hopeless right now. Just know this, you're not alone. And if that's you right now, I wanna share some good news with you. And it's news that you can share with the people in your life that might be feeling that hopelessness as well, because let's be honest, everyone needs hope. Now, when it comes to the topic of hope, the Bible addresses it and talks about it in a weird way. There's over 180 verses in the Bible that have that word hope in it, and I read every single one in preparation for this message. And I noticed a weird theme. The Bible doesn't divide the world into those that have hope and those that don't. That's what we do. We say things like, you just need a little bit more hope, or don't give up hope, or like we've said a few times in this message today, I- I'm hopeless. But that's not how the Bible talks about hope. The Bible says that all humans have hope, it says that everyone is, is kind of born with an instinctive sense of hope. And from the moment you're born until the moment you die, you never actually lose hope. So there's no such thing as a hopeless person according to the Bible. That's the first truth about every single person listening here today. Your hope is in something. Let me back up real quick, big picture for a second. All of us, Christians, non-Christians, young and old, we can look around the world that we live in and say, this is broken. This is not the way it's supposed to be. So yeah, 2020 was a bad year, but it's not that much different than years past for, from people all over the world. It just brought that brokenness that was already there to our attention as Americans. You know, there's wars, there's terrorist attacks, there's countries bombing other countries. There's the way the earth seems to fight back against us with storms and droughts and natural disasters. You can see corruption at almost every organization and institution that you look at. There's the slow march of time that that slowly wears away our health and our bodies. And if you're really honest, you'll have to admit the brokenness isn't just out there or with other people, but it's also in here. I do stuff I don't wanna do. I got habits and hangups. I act selfishly. I willingly hurt other people sometimes. And so from the moment we're born, we begin to attach all of our hopes to certain things, things that we hope can fix the brokenness. So from an early age, obviously we hope in our parents. And then comes the day when those hopes are dashed and we learn that they can't always protect us. They can't always give us everything that we need. So as we grow, our hope transitions to other things, to relationship, to popularity, to education, to a degree, And as we get older, our hopes go to a job or a marriage or a family, then to a political movement or a party or a cause. People put their hope in science to fix everything. Or some people say it's education or environmentalism or eating vegan or spaying and neutering your pet. All right, you name it, we hope in it. Everyone here hopes in something to fix the brokenness of this world. But none of those things can ultimately fix what's wrong in the world. So inevitably, all those things will disappoint us. And that's what many of us are feeling right now. You see, the way the Bible divides the world is not into two groups of one that has hope and one that doesn't, but one group that hopes in something true and the other group that hopes in something false or what the Bible calls vain hopes. See, it's the object of our hope that's important. That's what the Bible says. One of Job's friends in Job 8 says this, "'Such is the destiny of all who forget God. "'So perishes the hope of the godless. "'What they trust in is fragile. "'What they rely on is a spider's web. "'They lean on the web, but it gives way. "'They cling to it, but it does not hold.'" So Job's friend is pointing out, we hope in things that are fragile. That can't hold up underneath the burden of our hope, things that ultimately disappoint us. And the Bible is full of examples of what these vain hopes can be. Here's just two. First is riches or financial gain. Psalm 62 says this, surely the low born are but a breath, the high born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they're nothing. Together, they're only a breath. So do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Because in the end, what? Riches will always disappoint you. If you set your hope in money or financial security, you will be let down. Money can't fulfill you. Now granted, never seen anyone crying on a jet ski, but you get the point. Another vain hope is people. Proverbs 11, hopes placed in mortals die with them. All the promise of their power comes to nothing. So it's not even wise to trust in a president or a politician or the leader of a cause or a movement. So the authors of the Bible don't say, if you're feeling hopeless, you just need more hope. Instead, the authors say, don't put your hope in something that will disappoint you. And everything except for God will ultimately disappoint you. Isaiah 49 says just that. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. And I noticed something cool when I was reading the Psalms. David, the author of most of the Psalms, he understood this. He knew that when he had these feelings of hopelessness, like many of us are feeling right now, it wasn't a matter of a lack of hope. Instead, it was misplaced hope. He was hoping in the wrong things. And he actually has these conversations with his own heart in the Psalms. And three times in Psalm 42 and 43, he says this, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Why do you feel kind of hopeless? And he says, oh, I know. Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. So if you're here today and you would say, I feel a little hopeless, God wants to say to you, you're not hopeless. You're just hoping in the wrong things and things that can't fix the brokenness of this world. And here's the second truth. You aren't designed to live with disappointed hopes. We as humans can't live a life of disappointed hopes. Viktor Frankl, he was a psychoanalyst as well as a a prisoner in the notorious uh, Camp Auschwitz during the Holocaust. And he picked up on how dangerous misplaced hopes can be. He actually wrote a book on this called Man's Search for Meaning. And he said that the prisoners in the concentration camp responded to their hopeless situations in different ways. Some became brutal and violent themselves. Um, Others, he said, just gave up and one day just allowed themselves to be killed. But then he said others held on to the hope that if they stayed alive, then their health or their family, their professional achievements, their fortune, their position in society would be restored to them. That's what their hope was in. But after liberation, he says, many of them got home and found that all of those things were gone. They were irretrievably gone. And they went into a deep depression and many even ended up committing suicide making it through the Holocaust, but committing suicide on the other side. Their hopes had been shattered because they were misplaced. And Frankel says this, the ones who truly overcame Auschwitz were those who had a fixed reference point beyond the world, something they held onto that was out of the grasp of death and destruction. Let me say that again. The ones who truly overcame were those who had a fixed reference point beyond the world. So you see trials and pain like we've experienced the past 12 months reveal where our hope is. They reveal the object of our hope. And so if you're feeling hopeless today, that's the first step, to acknowledge the object of your hope, that thing that your hope was in that has disappointed you. The first step is to name that. And then once you've named it, what God wants to do and what I wanna do is reorient your hope today. And I wanna show you a better thing to hope in. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. It's in the New Testament, kinda hard to find. Feel free to use your table of contents in your Bible. That's what we do, Uh, I do that all the time. Uh, If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the side screens, but this is written by a guy named Peter who was one of Jesus' disciples. He's writing this letter well after the death and the ascension of Jesus, and he's writing to all the Christians that have been exiled from their homes in Jerusalem because of persecution. So this is around the time of Nero when he was in charge of Rome, and there was large-scale government-run persecution and hostility towards Christians. And so the people that he's writing to have basically lost everything. They've lost their social status, their privacy, their wealth. Uh, Many have lost their lives, thousands of, just by virtue of being Christ followers. So they have way worse than we do now. And Peter knows that many of them are struggling with a feeling of hopelessness. And so he spends the first 13 verses reorienting their hope, reminding them of the one thing that they can hope in that will never disappoint. And their hope is our hope. And there's so much in these verses. There's no way you're gonna remember everything that I'm gonna say in the next few minutes as I unpack all the different nuances and dimensions to your hope. But I just want, want you to let the words kind of wash over you. I'm less concerned with how much you remember and more concerned with how you feel at the end of this, okay? Look at verse three. It says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth, into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's a powerful verse. Now, if you're new to church, that's gonna be confusing, okay? There's some theological words there, what I call Christianese, so let me explain. What Peter's saying is this. God knows what we all know, that this world is broken, that it's not the way it's supposed to be. He's not ignorant of the hurt and the pain and the war that we experience, far from it, but unlike us, he knows what the root cause of it is. And it's something that the Bible calls sin. You see, at one point, the world wasn't broken. It was actually perfect. That's what Adam and Eve got to experience in the garden. They had a close living relationship with God. They got to walk with him and talk with him every day. They had a perfect relationship with each other, a perfect marriage, and the world didn't fight back against them. It actually served them. But along the way, they began to believe the lie that God was holding out on them that they could provide for themselves more joy and satisfaction than God could give them. So they rebelled against God. They disobeyed his command. They sinned, and when they did, sin entered the world, and it was catastrophic. It broke apart the relationship they had with God. It broke apart the relationship they had with each other and other human beings, and it threw the natural world into disarray. And from that moment on, we humans have lived in a broken world because of sin. And not only that, but we have inherited that rebellious, distrusting spirit from our great, 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 great grandparents, Adam and Eve. Like them, we still, when we're born, we distrust God. We naturally rebel against him. So not only is our relationship with each other broken, not only does the earth itself fight against us, but we also stand guilty before a holy God. We deserve death, hell, and the grave. But because God knows what the root cause was, he had a plan to fix it. See, this is why Peter brings up God's mercy. Praise be to God in his great mercy because instead of giving up on us and instead of giving us what we deserve, God enacted this this rescue plan to make things right once more. And he says it all the way back in Genesis 3.15, I am going to fix this. And when the time was just right, he sent his son Jesus into the world to be born, which we celebrated just a week ago, and he sent Jesus here to fix all that was broken. Um, And you can see this when when he was on earth. When Jesus was around, relationships were restored. The blind were given sight, the sick were healed, the dead were raised from the grave, the storms were calmed. And when his time of ministry on earth was over, he willingly hung on a cross, and as we say as Christians, he died for our sins. Now, if you're new to church, that's a weird statement. That's a question I get all the time from neighbors and friends. Why did Jesus have to die? What did the death of Jesus actually accomplish? Couldn't God have just forgiven my sin? And the answer is no. God can't just sweep sin under the rug and act like it never happened because he's a holy God. He's a just God, he has to punish sin. And so what he did when Jesus was hanging on that cross is God took the very first sin of Adam and Eve And every sin after that, your sin, and your sin, and your sin, and my sin, all the way to the last sin that would ever be committed. And he took all of that sin and he placed it on the perfect, holy, and righteous son, Jesus Christ. And he who knew knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And instead of punishing you, and instead of punishing me, God poured out all of his wrath and all of his anger on his son, Jesus. Jesus paid the debt that we owed God. He paid for the sins that we had committed. And when he died, he made a way for us to have that restored relationship with God again. That's amazing. But he did more than that. You see, three days later, Jesus rose from the grave. Then he went back up into heaven. And right now, he is slowly and patiently making things right once more. Now, that won't fully happen until he comes back and creates a new heaven and a new earth. But right now, he's concentrating on restoring individual human beings back into a relationship with God and then transforming them from the inside out. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus or basically say, God, I believe that Jesus paid for my sin. I believe that you can forgive me based on what Jesus did, something amazing happens. In that moment, your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and God sends his Holy Spirit to live in you, to indwell you, and he gives you a new heart and new desires and literally changes you from the inside out. The Bible says you become a brand new creation. And so that's what Peter means when he says, praise be to God. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again because we don't deserve any of this. He just graciously and mercifully gives us this incredible gift. And the moment we open our eyes after that new spiritual birth, just like a baby, when it's born, it starts crying, and goes, wah, wah, wah. When we open our eyes after that new spiritual birth, we say, hope, hope, hope. The first thing that we see when, our open, when we open our eyes is hope, our living hope. And it's not a politician. It's not our physical health or safety. It's not education or science or a political cause or a movement. No, our hope is a person, a living, breathing person. It's the resurrected Jesus Christ. You know, the more I read through these verses, the more I think that when Peter was writing this, he was thinking back to the worst day and the best day of his life that day when he made his way to the tomb of Jesus after his death. You know, all of Peter's hopes were wrapped up in Jesus before he died. Because he thought Jesus would set up an earthly kingdom, that he would kick the Romans out of Jerusalem, and that he'd bring peace to the world by being basically the king of Israel. But when Jesus was crucified, all of those hopes were crushed. When Jesus died, Peter's hopes died as well. So Peter knows what it's like to feel hopeless. But he also remembers that moment when someone came up to him and said, hey, Peter, Jesus is not in that tomb. And he goes running back to tell all the other disciples and then he sees Jesus alive, standing in front of him. And he realized that here was a hope that would never disappoint because not even death could stop him. Jesus was his hope and Jesus was alive, right? Praise be to God in his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's your fixed reference point. That's the object of our hope that time or disease or death can't take away. That's what all of our hope is set on Jesus. And it's a living hope because Jesus who was dead is now alive. Isn't that amazing? But Peter's not done yet. He says there's more good news besides forgiveness of sins and a resurrected Savior. He says there's more that we have to hope in. And verse four, he says, not only have we been born again into a living hope, but also into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And this inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So not only do we get forgiveness of sins and the gift of the spirit and a new birth and life transformation that comes along with that, but we also get an inheritance. Well, what is that inheritance? Well, it has some similarities and some differences to an earthly inheritance. So I'm an only child, I have no brothers and sisters, and some of you are like, yeah, we can tell, Chase. But when my parents die and they go to be with the Lord, I get inheritance, and what is that? Well, it's everything that was theirs. Everything that my parents have will one day become mine, but there's a few problems that I'm gonna run into on the way to getting that inheritance. There's some things that could happen uh, to make it so I don't get that inheritance. First, the inheritance itself is a little unsafe. Lots of bad stuff could happen to that inheritance. The stock market or the housing market could tank. It could all be tied up in like a beach house and a hurricane could come and demolish it. Um, it could be stolen from an online account or a bank fault. My dad could bet it all on Duke winning a football game and then it's lost forever. So there's tons of stuff that could rob me of that inheritance. Second, I could die before my parents. And if that happens, I don't get that inheritance. And then lastly, I could do something so horrible that my parents decide to write me out of their will, and then I don't get that inheritance either. That's how an earthly inheritance works. But when it comes to our eternal inheritance, there's one similarity, and it's a good similarity. Just like on earth, I get all that my parents have, so in eternity, my inheritance is comprised of all that is God's. Well, what is God's? Everything. There's joy. There's peace, there's wisdom, there's glory, there's love, there's time, eternity, the earth and the cosmos and all that is in them. And the New Testament authors occasionally um, tell us what, what this whole thing is comprised of. And we learn that we get to see him create a new heavens and a new earth. We get eternal life on that new earth. No more pain, no more death, We get a glorified body that never gains weight or breaks down with age. We get to see Jesus face to face and live with him. And we get to enjoy that and so much more forevermore. And Paul says in Ephesians two, it's not just like God kind of gives us the keys and says, have fun, go wild. It says that God's actually involved, that he uses everything at his disposal to think up and to dream up new ways to delight us and to dazzle us for all of eternity. All that is God's will be ours one day. That's our inheritance. But that's where the similarities end. Unlike an earthly inheritance, nothing can ever take that inheritance away from you. Peter says it will never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept safe for you in heaven by the God of the universe. So there's no need to worry about anything ever happening to it. And not only is your eternal inheritance being kept safe and sound in heaven for you, but God is keeping you safe and sound here on earth. Your death doesn't disqualify you from your inheritance. In fact, that's the only way you'll get it unless Jesus comes back before that happens. And here's another amazing thing. God will never ever write you out of his will. There's nothing that you can do to ever cause him to do that. You know, my daughters are tweens nowadays, and so we have some interesting theological conversations, and some are really good. Uh, My oldest daughter asked a few months ago, she's a believer now, she said, Dad, okay, so I believe in Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I put my faith in him. I've gotten baptized, so I get to go to heaven, right? I said, yeah, you get to go to heaven. And she said, well, what if at some point I stop believing in Jesus? Won't I lose all that? And I said, you won't. She said, I won't lose it or I won't stop believing. I said, you won't stop believing. She said, but I might. I said, no, you won't. Look what this verse says. Who through faith are being shielded by God's power. God's using your faith to shield. You know what that means? That means that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead, the same power that flung the stars into space and created light and dark and the universe, God's own power will sustain your faith all the way to the end. Jesus said, I know my sheep and they know me. I give them eternal life, they shall never perish and no one can pluck them from my hands. We say here at Hope, once saved, always saved. Isn't that amazing? The one thing that could dash your hopes, the one thing that could stop you from getting that inheritance, your own unbelief is being guarded and protected and empowered by God. Verse six, and all this, you greatly rejoice. Yeah. When we think about all that is ours in Christ, you better believe that we're rejoicing. But then Peter transitions a little bit. And he says, this isn't just some joyful news that we think about on a rainy day. This is extremely practical. This hope that we have directly impacts how we handle our daily lives, and especially suffering and trials. When you have this type of hope, Peter says, you go through 2020 very differently than people who hope in other things. Peter says it's like a night and day difference. Verse six says, though now, for a little while in the scope of eternity, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And he has a few more verses after that where he basically says, all right, all this is yours in Christ, but you're still gonna lose loved ones, and your earthly bodies are still gonna break down, and there's still gonna be pain, and there's still gonna be sadness, but none of those things can diminish the hope that you have. It's like Paul says in Romans eight, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Peter's saying that before Christ, those trials and those sufferings that we all experienced last year, that could very easily derail you and leave you depressed and despondent and, and anxious but we as Christians have a hope that stays strong and vibrant in the midst of pain. And that's the true test of hope, isn't it? He's saying that Christians, even in the midst of horrible suffering, should be the most joyful and hopeful people in the world. I'm reminded of a story by John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, that hymn. He used to tell a story about a man who was on his way to receive an inheritance in New York City. And it was for a million dollars, which was a lot of money back then. And he's in this little horse drawn carriage. And Newton says that when he gets a mile away from town, from that amazing inheritance, his carriage breaks down. And he has to walk that last mile. And Newton says, What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. My carriage is broken. We say, It's just a mile. You got millions of dollars waiting for you. You can buy 10 new carriages tomorrow. What are you so worried about when you have a mile mile to go and an amazing inheritance? And what Peter is saying is, how much more so with Christ followers? And he's not diminishing or making light of our suffering. You know, we can kind of laugh at a broken carriage, but some of you have experienced deep pain in your life. The loss of a job, loss of a parent, loss of a loved one, physical pain that no medication can take away, a loss of a marriage. Some of you have even lost children. But what Peter is saying is that for Christ followers, even in the midst of the most horrific pain we can imagine here on earth, we can still look up, off, and away at our living hope, and we can say, just one more mile. Just one more mile over the hill, and then I get that loved one back. And I get that child back and I get physical health, and the presence of God, and joy everlasting. See, that living hope transforms the way that we walk that last mile. So we will weep in the midst of this broken world, but not forever, and not as those who have no hope. That's the power, Peter says, of reorienting our hope, of placing it fully on Jesus Christ. There's so much more in these verses, but, there's a really cool part at the end of the chapter. And I just wanna show you and then we'll end because for a lot of you, this isn't new. Maybe you grew up in church. That's not most of the people that call hope home, but some of you grew up in church and you've heard all this before. And you may still be feeling hopeless. And the reason is because you've been taking the hope that you have for granted. That can be me Sometimes. Well, Peter adds these last few verses for you because he wants to give you some perspective on the hope that you've been taking for granted. And there's nothing like a little perspective to make you thankful for the things you so often take for granted. You ever go travel overseas and really start to miss just the little things that you've been taking for granted? I went to Indonesia a few years ago and it's a Muslim country. We went as tourists, but really to encourage some of the Christians there. They're kind of few and far between. And we went to a really remote island and backpacked for six days. And man, I started missing things that I didn't, even know I loved when I went there, I started uh, growing in my appreciation for things like mattresses and clean drinking water and air conditioning and even like toilets. I got to my first village and I asked the village chief. I'm like, I use the bathroom. Where's it at? He pointed to a hut and I walk in and there's a hole in the ground with like two pads for feet. And I'm like, where's the rest of it? Actually said, dude, someone stole your village toilet. And he said, no, that's it. And he kind of explained to me how to use it. I'm like, it's gonna be a long six days. And it was, when I got back into civilization, I hugged that Western toilet, not like after a long night of drinking, like just pure love, like I'll never take you for granted again, right? So Peter's gonna offer us some, some perspective here on this hope that we have. In verses 10 through 12, we're not gonna read them, but he talks about, how all the Old Testament prophets and saints, the people who wrote the Old Testament, how all of them actually longed and ached for this type of hope. And Peter basically says, you don't realize how lucky you are to live on this side of the cross and the resurrection. You ever thought about that? That living hope that we've been talking about, God's people didn't always have that. They knew that God Uh, said that he would make things right once more and fix all that was broken, but they didn't know how he would do that or when he would do that or if he would even be successful, but we do. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that our hope in Jesus is sure and all will be made right once more, and we actually get to experience a little bit of that here and now. And the people in the Old Testament would have given anything to have that reassurance, that hope that we have, so don't take it for granted. And then he adds this little sentence, And it gives me chills every time I read it. Verse 12, even angels long to look into these things. Peter says, the angels in heaven, they're jealous of you. Isn't that backwards? Shouldn't we be jealous of them, eternal beings living in heaven that that are in the presence of God? They don't experience this broken world. But Peter says, no, 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 they're jealous of us. There's a really cool article by Justin Dillehay that I just read that unpacks all this. But he says, if you could go up to heaven, and you could listen to what all the angels are talking about and excited about, what's the talk of the town. If you could talk with an angel, they would tell you that all the buzz in little angel town centers around what Jesus is doing for you. That's what they long to look into. That's what keeps them riveted. Why? Because Jesus has done something for you that he never did for them. You see, angels have a creator, but you have a redeemer. When the devil rebelled against God and took a third of the angels with him, God said, let them go. But when the devil tried to take you out of God's family, God said, I want them back. And I'm gonna do whatever it takes to get them back. You see, Michael and the angels that stayed with God didn't need a redeemer. The devil and the angels that he took don't get a redeemer, but we do. And that's what has them so interested. Peter's saying there are thousands of angels every single day that are just watching you live your life intently. And they're just watching God's amazing story unfold in your life, and they're in awe at the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness you get at the hope that you have that they don't. That's how powerful our hope is. I never connected these two things before, but in the Old Testament, before there was a temple, there was something called a tabernacle or a tent where God would meet with his people. And in the back, there was the Holy of Holies where God would dwell, and there was something called the mercy seat. And it's where the the Israelites would sacrifice an animal and take that blood and pour it out on the mercy seat and God says, I forgive you. He'd say, I forgive you of your sins. I'm gonna make good on my promise. You are still my people. It's where that relationship was cemented and mercy was given. You know what was on either side of that mercy seat? Two sculptures of angels just staring intently at the free forgiveness and the mercy that God showed his people. And they're still in awe at us today. You have a hope that the Old Testament saints would have given anything to have, and you have a hope that even angels long to look into. That'll get you going. Your goer's broke, okay? Verse 13, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so as we close and we start off the year of 2021, whatever may happen, I wanna take a minute and just collectively do that today, to just set our hopes fully on Jesus Christ. So can you just bow your head and close your eyes at all of our campuses online, just bow your head and close your eyes, unless you have a toddler, don't do that, but bow your head, close your eyes. And let's all just be honest right now. Wherever you're at, and you're seated at campus or at home, can you just admit what you've been setting your hopes on? Maybe it's politics, maybe it's health, maybe it's money, maybe it's control, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's a job. Whatever it is, can you just name that right now? And then, can you just pray something like this? And there's nothing magical about this, but could you just pray, God, would you forgive me of that? I have such a better hope in the living and resurrected Jesus. So right now, would you just do a little heart work? Would you kinda pry my fingers one by one off that thing that I've been hoping in, and would you just tie my hope fully to Jesus? Would you just allow me to set every single ounce of hope that I have on your son, Jesus Christ? And when I wake up tomorrow and I start to fret, Spirit, would you just remind me I've got a mile to go and then eternal life and an amazing inheritance So would you just turn me into the most hopeful person that this world has ever seen? Would I just overflow with hope and peace this year because I have every reason to be that way. So thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. And thank you for the hope that I have in Christ. Now keep keep your heads bowed, keep your eyes closed. Maybe you're listening today and would say, Chase, I've never experienced that new birth that Peter talks about. I've never even asked God to forgive me of my sins. I've never even started that relationship with them. I got the best news for you. You can do that right now. And it would be the most amazing way to start off this new year. So if that's you, would you pray something similar to this? Again, there's nothing magical in this prayer, but would you pray, Father, I kinda heard today that I stand guilty before a holy God because of my sin, I'm separated from you. But I also heard that your son Jesus paid what I owed that he died on the cross for my sins, and you said that you would forgive me because of what Jesus has done. So Father, would you do that? Forgive me of my sins. Send your Holy Spirit to transform me from the inside out. Reorient my hope into Jesus Christ. And would this just be an incredible year where I get to know you and your word and begin to live this new birth, this newly transformed life. In Jesus' name, If you prayed that, that's the best decision you will ever make. And I wanna ask you to do me a favor. I want you to tell someone. If you're sitting at one of our campuses, maybe tell the person that brought you. If you're online, raise your hand, type it into a chat. There is a real flesh and blood person on the other side of that screen that would love to chat with you, give you a phone call. I bet they would drive across town to have coffee with you and answer questions and just celebrate with you. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this new year. We know that whatever it holds, it will not diminish the hope that we have in Jesus. God, allow us to place our hope fully, and we pray that we will be the most joyful and hopeful people the next 12 months because we have every reason to be. And we pray that we're so joyful and so hopeful that the people in the city and the triangle and our family and our workplaces would just ask us to give a reason for the hope that we have, and we just get to point them to Jesus. So we thank you, we love you, and we praise you. And it's in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the HOPE Podcast. We appreciate you joining us as we tackle issues facing our modern world from a biblical perspective. To make sure you don't miss a message, please take a moment and hit the subscribe button. Also, if you're new to HOPE and want to check out what we're about and how to be a part of our community, go to our next steps at gethope.net slash next. Let us know your story because we'd love to connect with you.